Welcome to the 34 Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. And welcome, everyone, to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome, welcome. I'm Sean Marlinukum, and that is Dawn Sam Alden. Hey, Dawn. Hey, how you doing? We have a special guest, don't we? A very special guest. When we were talking about women have always fought, I mentioned in passing the story of the suffragettes who knew jujitsu, who served as what was called the bodyguard for the suffrage speakers. And at that time, you had said, that is a subject for a whole podcast. So this is that podcast. And we have as our very special guest, Mr. Tony Wolf. Tony and I met through stage combat circles when I lived in Chicago. And I am going to let him talk a little bit about his bio because this man has done pretty much everything you can think of. Well, thank you for that introduction, Dawn. The reason I have a weird accent is I come from New Zealand originally. Dawn and I actually met for the first time at, at the Paddy Crane International Stage Combat Workshops in Banff, Canada. Oh my goodness, yes! I think it's still running. It's one of the um, major international stage combat get-togethers, basically. And it was about eight days, I guess, of full-on stage combat and martial arts workshops with leading instructors from all over the world. It was a really fun event. Many of the English-speaking countries have their own stage combat societies. Tony is the founder of the New England Stage Combat Society. And yeah, and I, well, I guess my background is basically where the martial arts and the creative arts intersect. And I've spent my whole life working as a martial arts instructor I worked as a professional wrestler in New Zealand for a few years. Started the, the New Zealand Stage Combat Society, I guess, in the early 90s. Worked as a stuntman for film and television and then a fight coordinator. I guess the, the big credit would have been The Lord of the Rings. I was what they called the, fight, the cultural fighting styles designer. What was that? That sounds incredibly cool. What was that? Well, it basically meant that my job was to design the ways in which the various fantasy races and cultures would move and fight in the movies and then train the actors and the, the stunt team. That is amazingly cool. That was for a couple of years. And then I started traveling a lot, started teaching a lot of international workshops and so forth. And it was, in fact, I mentioned earlier, it was um, traveling through Chicago and teaching workshops where I met my eventually to become wife, Kat. Kat Rosen at the time, now Kat Wolf, is a member of Babes with Blades in Chicago. So she was part of the theater company that I started there. And she likes to tell the story about how I was the only one that she ever gave her number two on a napkin in a bar because she wanted to be part of Babes with Blades. So she wrote her number on a napkin so that I would give her a call. And I did. And she, you know, has been affiliated with Babes for many, many years. That is the second Babes with Blades story I've heard like that. Can you just, uh, let's, for the listener, remind the listener what Babes with Blades is and how they can... Of course, Babes with Blades is an all-female stage combat theater, well, all-female and non-binary stage combat theater company in Chicago, Illinois. It's been going for 23 years now, I believe. We only present f plays that have fighting roles for women in them. Wow, and that is an excellent thing. Tony, can I ask you a couple of questions about your bio? Yeah, sure. And what's your martial arts background? Which martial arts did you study? Do you teach? Started off with Taekwondo um, in the late 70s and then all kinds of things, Filipino, um, Brazilian, many Asian styles. Um, that was for about 20 years. And then I spent roughly the next 20 years um, focusing on European styles because I was interested in the creative challenge of um, bringing an, a previously extant martial arts style back to life. So you said European styles like Savate or something like that? No, no, no. The um, historical European martial arts, they're referred to as Hema. 
And this is a project that's been ongoing internationally for about 30 years now. In brief, it is the task of reviving a martial art from written sources, because dating right back to the 1600s and even a bit before that, martial arts masters in Europe wrote incredibly detailed um, treatises, combat manuals, that described their systems in, in amazing detail and beautifully illustrated and so forth. These books were, um, were prized possessions of the aristocracy at the time. About 30 years ago, a number of scholars who'd been investigating this stuff started to get together, mostly via the internet, and say, well, look, we can, we can get these things translated. We can actually bring these styles back from the dead. And I thought that was a fascinating project, and certainly it fed very much into my approach to stage combat at the time. Over the past 15 years or so, I've been very much involved in the revival of a 19th century style called Bartitsu, which actually ties into to our subject this evening, to the uh, Jujutsu suffragettes. How did you become interested in the suffragettes and the suffragitsu? How did you discover this? This Well, it dates right back to when I was a young teenager. I read a book of um, sort of martial arts trivia, martial arts oddities and so forth. And it had a short section describing this very romantic story of young society women in London who would go shinnying down the drainpipes in the dead of night and sneak away from their wealthy families in order to take secret jujitsu classes because they were members of this secret society called the Bodyguard. And as a young teenager, I just found that fascinating. It was the sort of transgressive, almost Zorro-esque superhero vibe but because I was 13 or so, and this was early 80s New Zealand, that one passage in this one book was the only information that I could find on that subject. And um, that was just the way it was until, well, until the internet, and then really um, via my, my interest in Bartitsu. Did you say Bartitsu? Bartitsu, yeah. Very briefly, Bartitsu was kind of the original mixed martial art in the sense that it was the first time that Asian and European fighting styles had been brought together and deliberately combined into an art of self-defense. And it was founded in London in the year 1898 by a fellow called Edward William Barton Wright. The school only lasted a few years in London, but during this um, period of a few years, what they were doing really anticipated the modern trends in martial arts towards mixing styles together and pragmatic pressure testing and so forth. And the way this segues into the suffragette story is that Edith Garrod, who became the um, Jiu-Jitsu suffragette's unarmed combat instructor, studied with some of the former Batitsu Club instructors. Right. And she, uh, from uh, so those listening know, there's a great documentary that Tony has created about the suffragette In that documentary, you talk about Edith and her husband, correct? Yes, William. It's likely through context clues that they both actually trained at the Batitsu Club but we don't have um, positive confirmation of that. So she becomes the woman who trains the other bodyguards. How, what's her story? How did she get connected to the suffrage um, movement? Well, she was um, a young woman in Wales during the 1890s. She was very much into sport and, again, what they used to call physical culture, calisthenics and exercise and so forth. William, at that time, before they were married, was traveling as an itinerant instructor in physical culture and he turned up in a gym in, in Edith's town and they met and fell in love and got married. Uh, they moved to London, relocated there. I think William um, got a job full-time teaching physical culture at one of the London universities and it was through that interest that they first encountered Barton Wright. It was about 10 years after that at a period when the Japanese instructors were, were still teaching in London and he effectively gave his school to William and Edith, who were by that time really the uh, the senior British um, jiu-jitsu practitioners. So he, what was happening that the Japanese instructors would were only coming there for a short period of time, decided to leave because they wanted to just return home, or was there some other reason that they abandoned their dojos? One of them didn't. Um, Yukio Tani remained in England for the rest of his life. He had a very successful career as a challenge wrestler, that was something that he'd started doing um, under Batitsu Club auspices in the 1890s. So Edith was a student of one of these Japanese instructors, and then the dojo was left to her and her husband. That's right, yeah. She um, trained with both of them, but primarily with um, Sadakazu Yanishi. We don't know why he left England for Japan. Probably he just got homesick. 
And yeah, he left the, it was called the Golden Square Dodger um, to be managed by Edith and William. This was all, it was just perfect timing as far as the suffragettes were concerned, because as their protests were becoming increasingly physical in various ways, they had increasing need for self-defense. And so Edith, whose relationship with the suffrage movement was basically professional, she started teaching a women-only class, which was called the Suffragette Self-Defense Club, separate from their activities at the Golden Square Dojo, where she was responsible for teaching women's and children's classes. It was taught in a separate location, and it was only available to um, members of the Women's Social and Political Union. How did that come about? How did she tie in to that grouping? I mean, that's what I'm curious is in the sense was, if she wasn't really a suffragette herself... Well, as Tony had said, the um, you know the protests were beginning to become more violent. They were starting to physically engage with the police in these protests, and um, the police were starting to physically engage with them. Which you know, for that time, for ladies, there were a lot of ladies of quality that were part of the suffrage movement in England, and for them to essentially be roughed up and thrown to the ground by police was just scandalous and unheard of. The suffragists realized that if they want to protect the speakers, if they want to be able to uh, continue to hold their events, that they needed to get some skills. You know, this being the the sort of jujitsu clubs being well known in the the sort of upper crust uh, society of London, it seems like it would be a natural, especially because the type of jujitsu that they would have seen performed and would have learned was especially force for people who did not have brute strength. So this would have been a natural match. And I would imagine that probably the people who became the bodyguard would have been the ones to seek her out rather than vice versa. Yeah, yeah. It was very much a natural fit. It was it was perfect timing for all of them. The way Edith explained it was she had been invited to do a uh, jiu-jitsu demonstration at a, a WSPU, basically a fundraising event that would have various performances and so forth to, to raise funds and awareness for their cause. Um, her husband normally did the the talking in the, demonstra- in the presentations while Edith did the demonstrating. This particular occasion, as she told it, one of the um, young male students came running in and saying, um, Mr. Garrod can't be here, he's, he's taken violently ill. So Edith was worried basically because she'd never done the talking before. Um, Emmeline Pankhurst herself came up and said, well, look, Mrs. Garrod, you know, here is my trick for speaking to the audience. Just find someone at the back of the hall and speak to them. And then I'm sure we'll all, we'll all be able to hear you. And so with that encouragement, she did so. And that apparently was their, their first contact. And then um, shortly after that, I think it's likely that the Suffragette Self-Defense Club that I was talking about earlier was one way or the other the genesis for the bodyguard. Whether the Suffragette Self-Defense Club was set up as a kind of a front for the bodyguard initially, we don't know. Let's just give a little background about the suffrage movement Mm. in England, and then we'll come back to what specifically these bodyguards did and some of the altercations they got into. I would say to just keep in our our dear listeners' minds that the suffrage battles in the United States and in Britain were related but different. The fight for suffrage started in England long before it did in the States. It was quite a long battle. They still did not have suffrage, I believe it was the beginning of World War I, through a special request from the government in England, they stopped campaigning for suffrage during the war and turned all of their organization, you know, by that time, there were actually several organizations that were working on women's suffrage. And uh, so they turned all of their efforts towards helping the war effort. And in recognition of that loyalty, they won suffrage within, I think, a year after the end of the war. One question is, I heard in the documentary, they won suffrage, but it wasn't universal for women. I think it was for women over 30. Yes. And then yeah. 10 years later, it became, I guess they lowered the, the age. The other question is, how far back does the suffrage movement go in the UK? Because I know there was the, was it the Vindication of the Rights of Women? Is that? Oh, the the one that Mary Wollstonecraft wrote? Mary Wollstonecraft, yes. So, I mean, is the genesis really that far back? Do we have this, does, is that considered the beginning of the 
suffrage movement in England, the, this well, 18th century? Well, as a movement, I would date it to the mid-19th century. Um, okay. There had been individual thinkers, certainly going going way back, who had basically pointed out that the lot of women was was not a happy one. But you know, as an organised movement, probably from about the eighteen forties, their problem was that they were being very middle class and polite about it for decades. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was really a matter of, of letter writing campaigns and drawing room meetings, and they were making no progress at all, to the point that um, when Emmeline Pankhurst came on the scene and during the very early 20th century, she was immensely frustrated with the lack of progress. And that was effectively, that was why she and her daughter Christabel, her other daughter Sylvia, and um, some other women broke from what was then the, the major national suffrage organization, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, N-U-W-S-S, or NUS, awful acronym. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they, they split from that basically because they did not see any future in continuing this lawful, polite, it wasn't even agitation, it was it was basically a hobby activity by that point. Yeah. And so they, they decided to go militant, to go radical. Don, would you characterize the American suffrage movement as being less militant than the British one? What's your thought? Yes, I think it was. Um, it was also shorter in duration. Britain was where the action was happening in that regard. Although New Zealand, my home country, was the first country in the world to award women suffrage. That's yes. right. And do you have any take on why that was, Tony? I do, um, because New Zealand is founded literally on the on the principle of egalitarianism. It was effectively, New Zealand was founded by utopians, by people who were sick of the caste system, the class system in England, and wanted to create a, a more egalitarian society. And so a bunch of them shipped off to a couple of small islands at the bottom of the world and proceeded to do that. Um, certainly during my lifetime in New Zealand, the, the ethos of... Fairness, for example, um, in the U.S. it tends to come down to the concept of freedom. In New Zealand, it tends to come down to the concept of fairness. So I love that description. So yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how the bodyguards worked, how it operated? I wish I could tell you more about that. The frustrating thing in bodyguard research is that because it was a secret society, we only know the names of a few women who were definitely part of the bodyguard organization. Really? Yeah. yeah. We know a fair bit about what they did and something about who they were. But logistical details, organizational details are almost entirely have to be kind of second guessed from newspaper reports and so forth. Fortunately, there were a lot of newspaper reports and a number of them came from um, the suffragettes themselves writing in their own uh, media. Do you think that some of this stuff, is it possible that there are diaries and just different bits of writing out there somewhere, maybe in family archives or, or do we think that it's possibly lost to history? Well, funny you should say that. Um, I'm in contact occasionally with some of Edith Garrod's descendants, uh-huh. including a couple of uh, granddaughters who, who knew her when she was alive. She was a very old lady when they, when they were young. But yeah, there are rumors within the family of Auntie Edie's uh, suffragette scrapbook. Oh, wow. wow. That would be the holy grail. You know, if it ever shows up in someone's attic, that will be wonderful. So there were... There were particular run-ins that I noted in your documentary, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, well, first there was the issue of the raids on Parliament. Now, what was that exactly? Well, that was as part of an overall scheme of political protest, of, of again, increasingly um, radical political protest. And it began with Christabel Pankhurst and her friend Annie Kenny standing up in the middle of a public meeting. I think it was a liberal um, political rally. Christabel and Annie stood up in the middle of a meeting, unfurled a big banner and started shouting, when will you award women the right to vote? And they refused to stand down, even though the audience and the speakers on the stage were shouting at them. They refused to stand down. Police constable arrived, carried them out. They were kicking and fighting all the way both arrested for resisting um, arrest or for assaulting an officer, I think, actually. Both appeared in court. Everyone expected them to to be nice, contrite, middle-class, educated girls. But, of course, Mm -hmm. they didn't because this was all part of a a wider strategy. They refused to pay the um, fine, and so they were jailed just for a few days each. But this was all designed to attract publicity and attention to their cause. Protests escalated from that sort of thing through to chaining themselves to railings outside of political rallies so that they couldn't easily be removed. And they continued to, to escalate to the point that they began to stage these raids on Parliament, which was 
a system of protest where groups of seven women at a time would process from a rallying station, um, typically one of the large uh, meeting halls near Parliament, and would arrive outside the gates of Parliament. And then they would be met a couple of minutes later um, by another group of seven because it was illegal for security reasons for very large groups to travel en masse towards Parliament. And so they got around that by sending groups out in, in groups of seven and then just reconvening in front of the gates. Right. They would make what were basically performative demands. Again, all of this was about getting media attention, getting eyes on their political cause. And they they did that, I think, 17 times over the course of a couple of years, to the point that it, it began to become kind of old hat. Although the raids remained, I use the phrase in the documentary, almost an urban spectator sport. Because it was so novel for members of the public to see educated ladies um, in scuffles with police constables. And so these the raids would actually attract very large crowds. It was like a football match. And the suffragettes would try various you know, maneuvers to get around the police. That never worked. But it was all good sport, which made it good press. For a while, it kind of served everyone's interest until the infamous events of, of the Black Friday confrontation. Can you tell us also, too, uh, a little bit... Were the police brutal with... Not really. Um, certainly not prior to Black Friday. No, that it was all kind of restrained and British and polite. And again, it's very easy in looking at this stuff to imagine the cops as the baddies, as the bad guys. In reality, the, the situation was much more complicated than that. Many um, of the police came from the working class, which meant that many of them were in fact politically sympathetic to the suffragettes cause. There were frequent situations in which aggressive, the term then was yobs or hooligans, aggressive young men in the crowd um, would, would pelt the suffragettes with, with objects, would sometimes try to physically attack them and so on, and the police would defend them, which is one of the reasons why what happened on Black Friday was so shocking. And the background for that was that the suffragettes were staging another raid on Parliament. They had no reason to anticipate that it was going to go any differently. From my research, the way the reason why the Black Friday event did go differently came down to a rather Machiavellian tactical decision by Winston Churchill, who was at that time in charge of, of supervising this sort of thing. When was this, Tony? What, uh, uh, what year? Black Friday, 1910. So Churchill had instructed the police not to make any arrests. That essentially forced a bottleneck situation so that... A group of seven women arrived and began the protest. Another group of seven arrived and began the protest. Normally, by this point, the arrests would start. But because of Churchill's decision, the police had no option but to physically bar the suffragettes from entering. And more and more groups started arriving. More parties of seven started arriving. So now you have not 14 women, but 50 women, and then 100 women. And then the police had to bring in reinforcements. I'm not sure, but I very strongly suspect that Winston Churchill anticipated all of this. And so what would normally have been a managed, relatively peaceful protest developed into what was, in effect, a riot. During that, it was a melee, it was a series of effectively running street fights, running battles between the suffragettes and their supporters on one side, then the police, and then also a large and excitable and agitated crowd. So it was a kind of a three-way melee and probably some of those uh, hooligans as well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now, the allegations of police brutality came particularly from members of the suffrage, uh, the suffrage group who were manhandled, they said, by the um, police. That is a very polite term. They also uh, charged sec- that they were sexually assaulted. Well, they didn't use that term, but yeah, they, um, the term used back then tended to be things like outrageous behavior. Hmm. So just again, to you're saying that they didn't just physically rough them up, that they actually sexually assaulted no, these women. No, I'm specifically not saying that. It is very easy to draw that conclusion. I really feel like I have to sort of keep underscoring this. Members of the bodyguard, members of the WSPU in general, were fighting battles on at least two fronts. There's the street confrontation, the physical stoush that's going on. There is also, and very importantly, a propaganda and public relations war going on, really for the hearts and minds of the British middle class. Right, yeah. And the bodyguard, by force of circumstance, found themselves on the front line of both of those fights. When you read reports written by the mainstream media and then also by the through suffrage media, you're reading two different kinds of propaganda. 
it really takes you know, very extensive deep dive research to be able to figure out what actually happened in any given circumstance. The suffragettes alleged they were again, outraged, which, which definitely implies sexually assaulted, by people who they suspected of being plainclothes police officers. Not too differently from the conspiracy theories and agitation that's happening in the in our country yeah. right now. There were, you know, allegations of conspiracies from both sides. The suffragettes and their supporters would say that, you know, they had um, plainclothes policemen in the crowd that were essentially going further than the uniformed police would have gone. Precisely, yeah. The, the parallels between what was happening in, the, in these scenarios in London in 1913 and 14, and what's been happening around the world, and particularly in the US, yeah, they're profound. People are people, and the scenario really hasn't changed very much. You know, the, the physical dynamics, the psychological dynamics of this type of street confrontation haven't altered. They didn't alter in the 1960s, and there we're seeing the same thing today. And I will say that as a woman who has found herself in a lot of crowds in her life, most peaceful, some some not so peaceful, the instance of some random dude in the crowd taking advantage of the situation to uh, put hands where they do not belong have been legion. Oh, yeah. No, I have no doubt. The The crucial point I want to make is that since movies like the, we'll talk about Suffragette, the, the recent, um, relatively recent English film, that represented violence from uniform constables against suffragettes that was on the very extreme end of what was reported even in, in suffragette media. Yes, yeah. But because that's, for most people, that's their visual reference because they, you know, they haven't seen the, the photographs, they haven't read all of the detailed police reports. And what I'm noticing in, in over the past several years, there's just this kind of urban mythology arising around this situation, which wow. is that uniform constables were beating women down with truncheons, which was shown in the movie. And there's just, there's no evidence that that was happening. It's certainly not during um, the Black Friday confrontation. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I think you say this in the, in the documentary, you know, that picture of one of the suffragettes on the ground with a policeman, a couple of policemen standing over her. Yeah. That was like the height of scandal. It was so scandalous that when it was published in the papers, the government forced the papers to recall the picture. Yeah, it's never been entirely clear why she was down on the ground, or for that matter, why the uniform constable was standing over her. He may have, he may literally have been attempting to help her up. He may literally have just thrown her down. We don't know. Although I was very happy to find during research for the documentary. Another picture that was snapped probably by the same photographer just a moment before or after that. It doesn't give much more in the way of context clues, but it was, it's the next frame. So what, in fact, then, Tony, what spurred the need or spurred the idea that bodyguards would be key for women in suffrage? Was it simply the fact that there could be this kind of chaos that ensued? The specific circumstance was very much the Cat and Mouse Act. What had been happening was suffragettes were regularly being arrested and they would be taken to jail, usually for very short sentences, because the crimes they committed by and large were relatively minor. Uh, they were increasing in vociferousness and in, I'd have to say also in ingenuity. They, they used very clever tactics. However, because the suffragettes considered themselves to be political prisoners, they very quickly adopted the tactic of going on hunger strike. And that was, that was the tradition. If you believed that you'd been unjustly arrested for basically political reasons, then you would hunger strike while in, in prison as, as a form of extra protest. In fact, they were not being arrested for, you know, for, for being suffragettes or for holding political opinions. They were arrested because they committed crimes. They were disturbing the peace and destroying public property and stuff like yeah, that. For yeah, that sort of thing. And so the fact that they went on hunger strike in prison was very much tactical. And the... The authorities played right into that by a couple of months later introducing the force feeding, I think. The, the, the authorities had to. That was the thing. It was um, They had an ethical and also a legal duty of care. And the, the parallel I use is that if a, a prison warder in, in London in 1913 walked by one of the cells and saw a prisoner attempting to hang herself, 
Right. They'd be ethically and legally obliged to try to save that person's life. Likewise, if prisoners are attempting to starve themselves to death, and often they went on hunger, thirst, and also sleep strikes. So they, was, they were very serious about this. If the prison, if the prison authorities, and therefore by extension the government, allowed that, then they would be breaking their own laws. They would, would be considered incredibly unethical. So they were really forced themselves into forced feeding, which was an incredibly unpleasant procedure that involved suffragettes being forcibly held down in chairs while a, a prison doctor forced a rubber tube either down their, um, through their mouths or um, more frequently through their nostrils, except for when it went wrong, because occasionally the tube went down the wrong way and women ended up with, with food being fed into their lungs, which could result in pneumonia and you know, all sorts of terrible health complications. That that situation became untenable from the government's point of view because the suffragettes very cannily represented this as the government is torturing women in prison. And I have absolutely, not, absolutely no doubt that the women who were force-fed experienced that as torture because I'm trying to represent um, all sides. The wardresses and certainly the prison doctors also very much resented having to do this because it was such an unpleasant thing to have to do to another human being. But the suffragettes, like I said, did successfully represent this via their media, their newspapers, interviews, and so forth, as government-sanctioned torture. And enough of the increasingly influential middle class bought into that and felt great sympathy for the suffragettes in prison that the government was forced into coming up with some sort of a workaround, which was this thing called the Cat and Mouse Act. I'm just going to introduce a couple of dates here because I'm looking at a timeline. So yeah. the the first hunger strikes were started in July of 1909. Force feeding started in September of 1909. Black Friday was November of 1910. And the Cat and Mouse Act passed in April of 1913. So let's let's talk about that. But I also want to ask you, Tony, about the laws. Now, were there laws, you're saying that they were being arrested for actually breaking, violating laws, but were there laws that had a specific onus upon women? No, I don't think there were any laws. I mean, yeah. there, as a matter of social custom, you know, women lived incredibly circumscribed lives during this period. So that a woman, for example, could go to university. Christabel Pankhurst was very highly educated. But she would not realistically expect to be hired as anything but perhaps a teacher, a governess, a nurse, you know, very limited professional opportunities. I believe she was qualified as a lawyer, but due to the way society was set up, she was never going to be hired as a professional lawyer. And that was a situation for a lot of women. I don't think that the suffragettes broke any laws that were specific to women. Right. They broke an awful lot of social custom that was, that was very much specific to women. Yeah, the one one of the things that they touch on in the movie is who controlled the family money at that time. Oh yeah. And you know, if a woman was married, her husband controlled the money. So if she wanted to donate, say, to the cause of women's suffrage or bail a friend out of prison, she couldn't do that herself. She had to get her husband to do it. Yeah, and that was a problem. Um it was one of the reasons why many of the women of the upper classes, wealthier women. Some of them were independently wealthy. They'd inherited money and so forth. Others who had, in effect, married into money had to kind of covertly donate funds to support the WSPU. Yeah, and, and again, I'm trying to be fair, a number of, of men were really very sympathetic to the suffrage cause. They even had their own nickname. They were referred to as the suffragettes. Suffragettes. I heard that, that was brilliant. Oh yeah. my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> so again, I'm really trying to underscore because it's so easy to fall into this kind of the suffragettes were the good guys and everybody else was evil. And, and it was much, much more complicated than that. Yeah. Well, the Cat and Mouse Act was the way the government got around the, the untenable public relations nightmare that was forced feeding. And it was an unprecedented act of law, an amendment, I think, to one of the extant laws, allowed women who'd been arrested and who was undergoing a hunger strike to be released after a period of time. They typically wait four or five days until the, the woman was very sick and weak from starvation, basically to demonstrate that they were sincere about the hunger strike. Uh, they would wait until that point and then release them on license from prison. So they would be released into the care of their family or their friends to recover from the hunger strike. They were then 
optimistically expected to submit to re-imprisonment and serve out the remainder of their sentence for their original crime. The police and government were apparently surprised that these suffragettes were not inclined to do that. (laughs) And so to answer your earlier question, that is when the bodyguard came into being because at this point, suddenly you have this, again, completely unprecedented scenario. Former prisoners being released on license as effectively as free agents. Um, a woman would go to the go to her own home or go to the home of a suffragette supporter or some such, would be cared for and tended to until she'd recovered her strength, which typically took about a week. And then the police would be effectively arranged outside of the house, watching all of the exits and entrances. One of the first roles of the bodyguard was to come up with various creative ways to smuggle women out of these um, safe houses. And that typically required um, more ingenuity than hand-to-hand combat, although it did sometimes require hand-to-hand combat. So, Uh, Tony, let me just understand. They would be released on license. Yeah. They would be living at home, let's say, under house arrest. Yes. They'd want to go make a speech. They'd be smuggled out to make a speech and then presumably smuggled back home? No. Oh, because once they were out of the place where the cops knew knew where they were, they were free agents. At this point, the WSPU had quite a large network of sympathizers, many of whom had basements and spare bedrooms and so forth. As long as the bodyguard could smuggle the women out from the home where they were officially ensconced during their recovery period, and they would live in the homes of supporters covertly, and as soon as they were caught, they're then taken back to prison. So, yeah, I mean, as soon not- as they were caught and identified as as wanted um, fugitives, which is what they many many of them were by this point. Yeah, they would be arrested and taken back to prison, and then they would go on hunger strike and then be released. Emmeline Pankhurst, she did this something like seven times. When the First World War broke out, and this is jumping ahead a number of years, the WSPU pivoted to fully support the government for the duration of the war effort. The reason they did that was pure political pragmatism. Yeah, it was really the only move left to them. Um, If they had opposed the government during a time of war, they would have become not only unpopular, but absolutely vilified. In fact, they would all probably have just gone straight back to jail because they would all, all effectively have been guilty of sedition under those circumstances. But while she was coordinating and doing very good work, She was also advocating very much in very nationalistic terms for the internment of what were referred to as enemy races, by which she meant um, effectively foreign nationals, people from German-speaking countries and so forth. She she was a complicated figure, and I'm not really doing her justice here, but... No, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, Don. I had mentioned this to you, because it seems that in the UK you had a lot of or suffrage-minded women, women's rights, uh, independent women, who also flirted with the other side of the coin, as we think of it, which is this very far-right sort of politics. You have the Mitford sisters, the six of them, and I guess it's Diana Mitford who became Diana Mosley and was uh, married the head of the British Union of Fascists. And then there was the lady Houston, I think was her name, Dawn, that we you had sent me the link about, who was also an independent-minded woman, suffrage-minded woman, but also flirted with fascism by the time, now we're talking Second World War. So I think it's an interesting phenomenon to look into. Yeah, there's a wonderful series that I was able to catch a couple of years ago on YouTube. I think it it may still be out there on YouTube, but it is a mini-series, and I think it's eight or ten episodes and it's called Shoulder to Shoulder. Yeah, I remember Shoulder and to Shoulder. And it is, oh, yeah, it's a wonderful... From, from the 70s. Yeah, yes. It's a wonderful study of the Pankhursts um, and the whole movement, the whole suffrage movement in the UK. And it really shows the, the sort of varying philosophies of different branches of the suffrage movement, similar to um, the sort of good suffragists and bad suffragettes in American history. You know, some of the people that we have revered for years as being incredible members of the suffrage movement in the States were horribly racist, whereas there were other suffragettes who did not feel that way, who were more socialist and more egalitarian in, uh, in philosophy. Yeah, there was, there was nothing monolithic about it. And that's kind of the frustrating thing for me with 
quite a lot of specialist knowledge in this area, but trying to explain this stuff, particularly in um, online discussions. One thing that I often do when I'm delivering um, live presentations on this subject is an exercise. I won't do the whole thing now, but I call it time traveling. It's a way of taking particularly young audiences, audiences who aren't used to thinking about history, back. The, the essential point is the past was a different country. And going back through all of the massive society-changing events of the 20th century and pointing out that in 1913, all of that was in the future and much of it would have been completely unimaginable. Yeah. You know, the whole the, the notion of a world war, we take that for granted today because we've had two of them. But in 1912, no one had ever heard of a world war. The stuff that we take for granted and the people who who aren't really accustomed to thinking about history they're very much inclined to imagine the past as the same as the present, only everybody wore funny hats. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's a very, that's a very good thing to do. It is absolutely, it's in, I find the same thing, particularly when looking at very ancient history, where you almost have a cycle where some things were similar to the way things are now, but there was certainly different mindsets. And I think that's oh, one yeah. of the things that's most difficult for people Yes, yeah, and that's really crucial to to you know informed debate about history. I wanted to ask you as well. Don brought up the concept of the American suffragettes who had a mm -hmm. different view on race. I noticed that in your documentary, there was a particular suffragette who was from India, Princess Sophia. Yes, it, it was uh, the way I always explain it is it was a hugely diverse mo movement in terms of social class. Princess Sophia was a, an absolutely unique case. She was the daughter of the last Maharaja of the Sikh Empire. And for various and incredibly complicated political reasons, she and her family had ended up living in exile in London. As extremely wealthy royalty, she was granted access to the, the creme de la creme of London society. She was actually Queen Victoria's goddaughter. And she was very politically minded, very independently minded lady. She was literally the only radical suffragette of color that we're aware of. People often jumped the gun then and assumed that that meant that the WSP was a racist organization and that they weren't admitting other women of color. But that was because the population, the demographic of women of color was minuscule in England at this time. And it's a point that, you know, for people who've only visited modern London and it's this wonderful, you know, diverse melting pot, all of that was a 20th century phenomenon. All of that was was post-World War One. Pre-World War One, it's it's difficult to describe kind of how few, for example, people of Japanese descent, not just women, but but human beings of Japanese descent were living in London during that period. You know, it's it's like a couple of dozen. The the sheer odds against a member of a of a fractional demographic becoming involved in a radical political movement, which was, again, a, a fractional demographic in terms of numbers, were just astronomical. So the fact that Princess Sophia actually did that, that she was, I think, speaks to her kind of extraordinary nature of her character. So we were at the point of talking about Cat and Mouse, the bodyguards. Yeah, they, the leaders of the suffrage movement in particular were in this very strange situation where they were wanted fugitives, but they were also, as political leaders, very motivated to keep on, to, to stay present in the public eye. And so that's what they did. They would hold rallies and they would be the featured speakers at rallies. So the police really had kind of an easy job of it in terms of tracking them down. They just needed to keep an eye on the newspapers because it would be advertised that Emmeline Pankhurst would be speaking at this location at this time on, on this date, which made the bodyguard's job <laughs> that much more difficult. And they really did use extraordinary ingenuity in, in these escapes and adventures, as Kitty Marshall put it. There was one instance where a suffragette was in a safe house. The police knew that they were there, but the police were not legally able to enter the property because her license of release had not yet expired. What they did was um, one evening, several dozen members of the bodyguard showed up at this house, all dressed identically. They all trooped in through the front door. The police watching all the exits outside, you know, tensed, waiting for for a fight. Several minutes later, every door and window in the home were flung open and several dozen identically dressed women came jumping out from the windows and the doors and running in every which direction. The cops, of course, had absolutely no idea which one of these several dozen women was the one that they were allowed to arrest. <laughs> 
That's brilliant. Yeah, but but sometimes they did, when necessary, the suffragettes did physically take on the police. And I think that's probably what everybody's waiting for me, for me to get to. So I'll do <laughs> Let's hear about the fights, Tony. Well, there was the Pavilion Theatre confrontation. What happened was Annie Kenny, who was Christabel's best friend, was due to give a speech at um, the Pavilion Theatre. The police, of course, were there in force watching all the entrances. They smuggled Annie in concealed inside a large wicker laundry hamper, um, which was presumably checked, but you know she was buried underneath the theatrical costumes and they, they let her go. She made it onto the stage, surrounded by a group of bodyguards. She was able to get out the words, I see we have a party of constables in the wings tonight. And then the police rushed the stage. And the suffragettes fought, of course. I haven't mentioned this yet, but your listeners might like to know. The suffragettes um, were operating under very strict edict from um, Emmeline Pankhurst that they shall do no harm. They were essentially a non-violent movement. This was not counting violence, crimes against property, which they were all for. Their earlier protests had included things like mass um, window smashings in some some of London's prosperous um, shopping districts and so forth. But in this instance, uh, the bodyguards were not armed. They had been given weapons, uh, along with their jiu-jitsu training offered by Edith Garrett. They were given these things called Indian clubs. And it's always a bit difficult to describe an Indian club. Looks very much like a bowling pin made out of a, typically out of a hardwood. And Indian clubs were very widely and cheaply available at this time because they were used in physical culture classes, kind of like in in, in aerobics classes. Indian clubs were used similarly. They were flourished around almost like juggling, um, spun and flourished in various complicated patterns to improve. And then when you start to incorporate lunges with your legs in various directions, it's a pretty good um, whole body workout. Because these Indian clubs were available and because they, as well as jiu-jitsu, the suffragettes basically needed everything they could get in physical confrontations with cops, they were um, handed these ceremoniously handed these Indian clubs with instructions to tie them underneath their skirts. So they presumably had a particular method of, of concealing the club under the skirt. Now, in this particular instance, they didn't have their Indian clubs. But um, during the stoush, the, the melee on stage as the police were trying to arrest Annie Kinney, they used pretty much everything else. They stole or somehow disarmed a chief constable. Now, in fact, a detective inspector who had waded into the fray wielding a walking stick, and they got that off him, and they were using that um, as a weapon on stage. They they actually auctioned it off. (laughs) (laughs) The police eventually, during this fight, um, did manage to grab Annie Kenny and drag her out of the theatre and into a waiting cab. The suffragettes, several of them, swarmed after them and climbed on top of the cab and kind of clung to the wheels of the the, um, motor cab until they were pulled away and Annie, Annie was eventually pulled off, um, pulled off to jail. Um, wow. But the meeting kept going because a number of the suffragettes were there legally. They, yeah, they had commandeered somehow or other um, chief detective's hat and walking stick and they auctioned it off for bail money. <laughs> nice. So that was fairly typical of the, the types of physical confrontations that they got into. The, more fa- the most famous um, one, though, was the Battle of Glasgow. And that, is that the St. Andrews one? Yes, and that was one of their last actions, as it turned out, um, during mid-1913. Emmeline had been announced as as presenting at a very large rally in St. Andrew's Hall in um, Glasgow in Scotland, which was a huge hall. It seated some uh, several thousand people. And um, members of the bodyguard made their way up to Glasgow incognito. They were actually posing as members of a, a women's theatre troupe. Um, because by this time they were basically all outlaws and the police were, were trying to keep tabs on what they were doing. They set themselves up in a local hotel. Um, Gert Harding, who was another interesting character, she was a young Canadian woman who was kind of the logistical leader of the bodyguard. Um, the suffragettes made their way to the stage. They discovered that the police had beaten them to it because, of course, the Emily Pankhurst speech is big news. There were about 50 constables um, waiting down in the St. Andrews Hall's basement. Mrs. Pankhurst appeared on stage as if by magic. In fact, she had, in disguise, she had paid for a ticket just like any member of the public. I think she was wearing a veil on that occasion. At the appointed time, she she appears and she begins her speech. Now, I should set the scene a little more. Again, it's a, a theatre full of, I think, 4,000 people. Wow. Very, very large stage, cavernous sort of a stage, with a semicircle of bodyguards seated behind her, a large, large number of bodyguards, about 30 women. And then other dignitaries, local suffragette leaders and so forth, are also on the stage behind them. 
So Emmeline arrives on stage and begins to speak, and she speaks for several minutes, at which point um, the loud tramp, tramp, tramp of police boots is heard from one of the offstage doors. At this point, things become a bit chaotic, but I will try to paint as, as clear a picture as I can. According to um, a guy called Stevenson, Detective Inspector Stevenson, who was in charge of the police operation that night, his instruction to the police, and I believe him in this case, had been that they were to wait until the suffragettes had finished and then once the rally was over, they were to quietly arrest Mrs. Pankhurst. What actually happened, as far as I know through you know minute research, this, this is what actually happened. The lead cop, who happened to be standing in sort of first position, either misheard or misunderstood him. When Mrs. Pankhurst began her speech, he sincerely assumed that his order was to go and arrest her. And so once he headed out, other cops followed him, and by that point, there was no calling it back. The, the, right. the confrontation had already begun. Immediately, members of the bodyguard jump up from their seats and create a, a circle formation around Mrs. Pankhurst. Other members of the bodyguard rush over to the front of the stage where there are positioned, among other things, large buckets of water. As the cops appear, the suffragettes begin throwing the buckets of water, or throwing the water at the cops to, to confuse them and slow them down. Cops begin to try to climb up onto the stage, but there were bouquets and wreaths of, of flowers. Those actually concealed a barrier of barbed wire. So the initial echelon of cops who are trying to climb up onto the stage instead get tangled up in the wire. Oof. Meanwhile, the second rank of bodyguards had stood up and had drawn their Indian clubs. As you can imagine, with an audience of 4,000 people, everybody had a different perspective on who drew weapons first. The suffragettes insisted that the police did. The police insisted that the suffragettes did. But within instance, everybody who had a weapon in that hall was holding their weapon. And then, as it were, shit got real. <laughs> the cops made it onto the stage, and there was a Donnybrook of a battle on that stage. One of the Scottish members of the bodyguard, a lady called Janie Allen, pulled out a revolver and began firing this revolver creating panic in the audience and also sort of oh God, panic yeah. among the police who believed that you know, their, their lives were at risk. In fact, her revolver was loaded with blanks, but she hadn't told anybody that. Oh, my God. So in addition to, you know, waterlogged, barbed wire, snagged, angry, confused police constables and a, and a panicking audience of some 4,000 people, now you have gunfire. She was disarmed. A police detective grabbed the gun off her and, again, believing the weapon to be loaded with, with live ammunition, began discharging it, the remaining rounds, towards the ceiling. He was knocked unconscious. A, a member of the bodyguard knocked him across the back of the head. Several suffragettes were thrown bodily off the stage. I'd mentioned Gert Harding earlier, the leader of the suffragettes, found herself facing a very large, very angry cop who was holding a truncheon. According to her own report, he raised the truncheon as if he was about to hit her, seemingly at the last moment changed his mind and instead grabbed her and threw her into a pile of upturned chairs. Now, meanwhile, as, as the battle rages, the party of bodyguards who were forming Emmeline's immediate escort were trying to maneuver her through the through the fight and up a flight of stairs leading from the stage to one of the um, other exits. The cops, anticipating that, had stationed an extra party of police constables at the top of that flight of stairs. They began making their way down. It, in effect, there was a tug of war between members of the bodyguard and cops fighting over Emmeline Pankhurst. I suspect what happened then was the bodyguards, out of concern for her physical well-being, let her go. Right, because sure. she was she was a very slight and at this point advanced middle aged lady. You know they, they were concerned that she was going to be killed one way or the other. The fight eventually petered out as various parties came to understand that Mrs. Pankhurst, who was the object of, of police attention, had in fact been arrested. Although it was announced to the audience that she had been freed, it was confirmed that she had been arrested. The rally continued, as was the suffragettes. MO in the situation. Um, the police did try to shut it down, but they couldn't because it was legal and, and they continued. I believe Flora Drummond, who was another um, prominent working class member of the organization, gave a speech in, in Mrs. Pankhurst's stead. And afterwards, the remaining bodyguard members of the WSPU and several thousand of their supporters made their way en masse to the police station when Mrs. Pankhurst was being processed and commenced another, not, not a riot, but it's a very vociferous protest. The scale and the violence of the Battle of Glasgow instantly made headline news. It was it was all anybody was talking about for days afterwards. 
you can imagine the recriminations, the allegations of police brutality, and they were countered by allegations of um, activist provocation. And so it's exactly the same thing that we've seen playing right. out here over the past um, several weeks. So is this the, is it, that is the last great conflict that the bodyguards and the suffragettes become involved in prior to the outbreak of World War One or the Great War? Not quite. There was one more. The major, historically, the major event um, immediately following that was a, a member of the suffragette who chose a, a method of art vandalism to protest against Mrs. Pankhurst being arrested yet again. I think this was probably the eighth time that, that she'd been arrested and imprisoned. Um, a lady who whose name slips my mind, but her nickname became... Mary Richardson. Oh, Richardson, thank you. Her nickname was Slasher Mary. <laughs> And she took it upon herself to take a hatchet to a, a work of art um, that was hanging in one of the major London galleries. Her, her line was that, as you have tried to destroy the most beautiful and impressive woman of modern history, I am now going to destroy um, this beautiful woman of art. I mean, I understand that feelings were very high, but some of the suffragettes' protests, I mean, they were referred to as terrorists by unsympathetic factions of the media. It's not often remembered these days, but some of their protests, you know, it, it wasn't all just clever fun stuff. They did protest by arson. They did set bombs. They really did. They tried very hard to make sure that the that these protests by explosives and, and arson were not going to kill anybody. Like they would choose the unoccupied country home of a politician who was, who was an anti-suffragette politician, and they would torture. They did kind of go too far, certainly in terms of public opinion. I mentioned earlier that they were losing public opinion in droves right before the First World War. They had really been forced into this spiral of, of escalation Yeah, that was, that was going to get people killed. It nearly did several times. I mean, in one instance, they set an explosive in an unoccupied train carriage, but they had mistimed it so that basically the bomb went off at a moment when this train was passing a train that was full of other passengers. Oh, wow. No one was killed, but the explosion blew out all of the windows in the occupied train. A number of people were cut and so forth. One of the arson attacks, although the politician and his family were not there, his servants were. Fortunately, they realized that the house was on fire and were able to escape, but it was a fairly narrow thing. I and a number of other researchers we're inclined to believe that people would have started dying by accident. Right. And then there was the accidental death, I think, a, a year or so before. It was in uh, mid-1913 of one of the suffragettes, a Emily Davidson, when yeah. she walked in front of the prince's, the king's horse, the prince's horse. The king's, yeah. At, uh, yeah, at the Derby. And she was killed, yeah. She was regarded as being kind of an extremist even by the radicals at that point. She was regarded as being a kind of unstable. I, I wondered about that. I've seen that. Yeah, that clip, that before. clip of her. And yeah. she has the votes for women. And some people were, some people speculate that she was, what she was actually trying to do was attach that little miniature banner that she had that said votes for women, women that she was trying to hook it onto his horse. Yes, that's the theory that I tend towards, partly because she and some others were practicing doing that a few days before. And she certainly did become a martyr, because, largely because um, it made international news, because she had very cleverly positioned herself so that she was in front of the news cameras. And both that event and then the suffragettes, of course, held a massive public funeral with um, marching groups and, and banners and, and a huge elaborate hearse and so forth. So forth. Yeah, she was their first and really... I don't want to say only martyr because other women had died, but she was the only woman who had died as a direct result of violence, as it were, for the cause. So where we get through this period and we get to World War One, which is where you'd mentioned, yeah. I believe, that Pankhurst made the strategic decision to support the war, focus on the war effort. Yes. Well, also, as she, as she pointed out, votes for women would not mean anything if England was annexed by Germany. Yeah, if, if Germany had actually succeeded in its in its warlike intent. What was the outcome then once we get through the war? What happens to the movement? I mean, suffrage occurs, I believe, correct? As you 
I can answer that one because I'm looking right here at the timeline. So in February of 1918, the Representation of the People Act enfranchised women over the age of 30 who were either a member or married to a member of the local government register. That was about 8.4 million women who gained the vote. And then on November of that same year, the Parliament Qualification of Women Act of 1918 was passed, which allowed women to be elected into Parliament. But it wasn't until 1928 that women in England, Wales, and Scotland received the vote on the same terms as men, which means over the age of 21. It's worth pointing out also that 1918 was also when many men were awarded the franchise for the first time. And then that was kind of the thin, the thin end of the wedge that the suffragettes and the, the suffragists as well um, had been agitating for. These world-changing events, I mean, in particular, both war, world wars of the 20th century, after which spur social changes, openings in World War One. it sounds like we're looking at a lot of suffrage. We see it throughout the world right votes for women after World War II, it, because of the nature of that war, of course, it becomes a lot about colonialism, freedom, ethnicity, different sorts of openings because we saw what the potential was on the opposite end had the Axis won. So we come through this, we have suffrage. What becomes of these women? What becomes of Pankhurst? Especially what becomes of the bodyguards? Well, we don't know very much about the bodyguards is the thing. We, we know the names of four or five of the women who were part of the bodyguard. One of, one of the reasons why we don't know much about them was it was kind of deliberate. During the 1920, I think it, it either got underway or came to a head during 1928, but a number of former suffragettes of an academic persuasion got together and um, tried to document what had happened, what had happened during their time as suffragettes, documenting the movement. But because the political climate had changed so radically during the years post the post first world war whether deliberately or not and no one really knows they very much de-emphasized the more radical and uh, frankly violent aspects of the women's suffrage movement that was kind of unfortunate because it created this public image of the suffragettes as being basically suffering martyrs right throughout the 20th century. And it was it was a sort of weird set of assumptions where either they were noble but you know, very passive suffering martyrs on the one hand, or they were these kind of silly, frivolous women who were, were just sort of fooling around on the other. But that was largely because the books that were written and the media retrospectives and all of these sorts of things, they were informed by the suffrage archive. But the suffrage archive had been put together, I have to say, kind of disingenuously by women who wanted to distance their movement from radicalism and from violence right. and from yeah. which which effectively means from real agency. When was that archive put together, Tony? During the mid late twenties, I think it, the date nineteen twenty eight is coming to mind. Now they, they wanted to be on the right side of history and they were in the position to do it because nobody else was in the position or had the motivation to create this archive. What about Edith Garrett's grandchildren? You said that they yeah. are did that legacy of her physical combat or martial arts, did she pass that down uh, through her lineage? I mean, did there, were people sportsmen or combat people in that? And- no, they did, but, but not, not in the way that we sort of make a better story. The Both of the ladies that I've spoken to, and this was a number of years ago, they both have memories of um, Grandma Edie grabbing their, their wrists very tightly and saying, no, come on, you, you can get out of this. Come on, I showed you how... And being ra- rather cross with them when they couldn't. I love it. I, I don't want to speak out of school. And these were, were private conversations and so forth. Suffice to say that, you know, again, the temptation is to to imagine these historical um, women as, as, as amazing role models in all aspects of their lives and personas. That was not necessarily the case. I think the, the family nowadays is, is kind of nonplussed by the whole thing. They're proud. They're a bit nonplussed at all of the attention that she's been receiving in recent years, um, because as far again, only a couple of them remember her. Because although she only died in the nineteen sixties, but still, you know, the nineteen sixties was a while ago now. On a positive note, a member of their family is quite a large family these days. He did become excited by by this um, thing that his, and I, I can't remember like which branch of the family, but he, he became excited by what Edith had done. He initiated a project that ended with a plaque being installed on the home where Edith Garrett had lived when she was doing her 
suffrage bodyguard activities. The motto underneath her name and her you know, life, uh, birth and death dates reads, The Suffragette Who Knew Jiu-Jitsu, which was a nice touch because that had been the caption of a Punch magazine cartoon. Right, right. Way back yeah. in 1913. What works could people look into to find out more about this? Of course, there is your graphic novel and there is your documentary. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but also what other works, just as we tie things up, where could people find out more about these women? Oh, well, the documentary is called No Man Shall Protect Us, The Hidden History of the Suffragette Bodyguards. That's available for free on Vimeo. And how about the graphic novel? Where can we get that? Well, it's available from Amazon. What I recommend people do, though, is is actually buy it from um, Comixology. Amazon's Kindle system for, for reading graphic novels is a little basic, and Comixology's is amazing. It's very artistic. It's, it's almost like watching the thing as a movie. And then it, it was also a couple of years after the graphic novel, the, the digital presentation, it came out in a collector's edition in print. And the title of that was uh, Blood and Honor, the Four World Saga, I think. And that's the full Suffragitsu trilogy and also two other graphic novel trilogies, unrelated, but all, all sort of connected by the fact that uh, they were written as part of the Four World Project. Well, this has been quite a journey. Thank you so much for all of this info. No, no problem. I knew that, uh, I knew that Tony would be a wonderful guest. So I just bladder. Thank you. I'm going to play our outro, but I want to say again, um, thank you very much for joining us at the 34 Circe Salon. Make Major be great again, disrupting absolutely history. disrupting history, and uh, we hope to see hear you again soon. And blessed be. Take care, folks.